What's up, y'all? Welcome to another awesome edition of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers right here at Franklin's Net. I am your host, Carl Franklin, in New London, Connecticut, and as always, from Atlanta, Georgia, will you please welcome the best .NET teacher I know, Mr. Mark Dunn. Hey, Carl. You know I'm going to say it, man. I am really excited tonight. Are you excited? Tell me you're not excited. I can't say I'm not excited. Are you cold still? Yeah, man. It's still freezing down here. Yeah, I, I heard the South is getting hammered with uh, wind chill and everything else. That's right. I was in Montgomery, uh, Alabama once again this week, and it was really cold down there. There's some people on the front porch down there that have complete weather shock, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're frozen to the front porch right now. <laughs> so uh, Atlanta must be coping uh, fairly well with it, are they? You told me before that the South really isn't prepared for weather. Well, you know, as long cold is okay. It's uh, it's really ice and snow. Uh, people can't drive in ice and snow here. Hey, speaking of driving, we've gotten a lot of emails from people that say they download the MP3s of our show and then they burn CDs and listen to them while they're driving. A lot of people say they do that, you know, on their way to work. Those are really smart people. They really are. Our hats off, go off to them. We want to know if uh, there's going to be a market for us to archive .NET Rocks episodes on CD and allow you to uh, purchase for a nominal fee a collection of them. If that's a good idea to you, send us some email and let us know. What do you think about that, Mark? Uh -huh. I think it's a great idea. Hey, anything that gets us a little bit of money for this lousy thing, right? Yeah. You know, what, yeah, what the, the kids need shoes, man. <laughs> that's right. So, why are you excited tonight, Mark? Well, tonight we have Alan Cooper coming on the show. Who the hell is that? Who's uh, Alan known Cooper? as the father of Visual Basic, uh, Alan Cooper is a household name. Yeah, the father of Visual Basic. Alan, welcome. Thank you. Actually, it, you know, it's, it's, I'm getting on in years, and they're starting to call me the grandfather of Visual <laughs> Basic now. The joke always is, who's the mother? <laughs> oh, that would be Bill. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you asked. Right, you got to call Bill a mother on a show, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, so so the story for, for the 10% of the population listening to this show who doesn't know who you are, you in uh, your company, I guess maybe it was just you, designed the user interface for the forms designer in Visual Basic 1.0. Isn't that right? Well, that's true. Actually, what I did was I invented a product, and I sold it to Bill Gates uh, in uh, 1988. And um, my company at the time that I did the deal was me, and uh, I hired a, a few fellows to help me uh, program it. We delivered a golden master to Microsoft for, the, for them to ship. The product was uh, something we codenamed Ruby, and it was a visual programming language for users. And... Um, all the all the, the the type A geeks at Microsoft were really jealous. Yeah, they couldn't handle that the users could program their uh, their their Windows shell more powerfully than than they could program their source code. So what they decided to do was take it away from the users, marry the visual programming interface to the then moribund Quick Basic. And thus was born Visual Basic. So I like to say I did the visual and they did the basic. <laughs> now, this is interesting. Um, you said you delivered a language. What was that language like? Not a, not a, I delivered a program. It was a visual programming 
uh, environment. I called it a shell construction set. But it really didn't have the, the traditional language compiler built into it then? No, it had a very stupid compiler. However, the compiler <laughs> had a couple of really remarkable things about it. Uh, number one, it had uh, the VBX interface, so you could extend the controls right. uh, dynamically. Third parties could add controls. And the other thing is that the language, while incredibly simple-minded and, and dumb, was uh, also dynamically incrementable. Well, if something is dynamically incrementable, it's also statically replaceable, which mm -hmm. is why Microsoft decided to statically replace the whole frickin' language. Right, right, right. Well, you know, Alan, I, I had never seen anything like Visual Basic in my life. So uh, that really changed the world. I often challenge students to, uh, to come up with any other development environment that would predate Visual Basic that allowed you to do visual programming. I'd never seen one. Yeah, there were um, not many. I, there's some really interesting stuff in the game world. When did the next computer hit the market? That was pretty close. Was that uh, before the, uh, VB? Steve Jobs's? Yeah, thing? That, that was much later, wasn't it? It was, was all much later. It was all a big blur, you know, those yeah. years. Yeah, I know what you mean. No, that was later. You know, I think some of that lives on in the uh, the Mac OS today, right. doesn't OS X, it? Well, yeah. No, actually, there was a sort of a contemporaneous uh, facility uh, on the Macintosh, and it came out just about the same time that I I turned over Ruby to Microsoft. Hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of speculation in the industry about how either Microsoft, I mean, had, Apple had copied me or I had copied Apple. But in fact, it was a case of um, uh, just of, you know, concurrent thinking. And there's actually a lot of that in the industry, I think. Where, I think you're right. You know, good ideas kind of become a kind of a, um, a, a meme, part of the zeitgeist. And, Absolutely. And, and multiple people have the idea at the same time. Yeah, that's that Jung stuff we were talking about before the show. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Leibniz and Newton with calculus, eh? Yes, or, uh, yeah, or uh, um, Bill Joy and Linus Torvalds and Unix. Yeah, or George Gershwin and Scott Joplin. Oh, wait a minute, they were in different eras. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> so um, was Microsoft planning to come out with a new visual language at the time that they saw your... Uh, that they saw Ruby, or was it something that, you know, Bill saw Ruby and said, ah, ha, this is a perfect migration for Quick Basic? Well, um, you know that old saying, uh, the <laughs> the victors write the history books? Okay. <laughs> the, um, you know, if you're the, the, the richest and most powerful company in the universe, <clears throat> you can rewrite history all you want. Uh, so it, uh, it once again it depends who you ask. Uh, Ruby was originally intended, agreed upon, and bought and sold for the reason of being the shell, the user shell for Windows 3.0. But really, cast your mind back to Windows 3.0, yeah, and uh, and a remarkable thing happens. In, when Windows 3.0 was under construction, at the time, uh, Windows was not a strategic application inside Microsoft. Actually, it was the third string. Right. The uh, number one string was... DOS. DOS. The number two string was OS2, Microsoft OS2. Right. And the third string was Windows. And the fourth string was Dave Cutler's 
uh, nascent operating system that eventually became called NT. Yeah. That was under construction at the time. And um, so there was uh, the OS2 guys were very jealous and very angry when they saw Ruby hmm. because they didn't have anything like it. Where did you get the idea? <laughs> That's what I do for a living is I have ideas like that. Don't Wait a minute. Let me try to understand this. So Alan Cooper is sitting on his back porch sipping a margarita saying, you know, users need a way to be completely moronic and be able to draw a square and make a window out of it. Well, um, I, you know, I, it took me about 15 minutes with Microsoft Windows 1.03, which was the first version that I used in 1986. Yeah. And uh, to realize that the shell, which at that time was called MS-DOS.exe, yeah. was the most unholy piece of crap ever delivered to the computing public. Yep. You felt like you needed an old priest and a young priest after using it for 15 minutes. Huh? <laughs> it, uh, yes. It, it, was, it was clear. It was abundantly clear, pretty much to everybody, actually, that somebody needed to create a good shell program. Right. And I proceeded to design a shell program pretty much immediately. And, and I had some sort of a little shell program on my computer kind of from day one. I was always noodling with something. Okay. And, um, and I was trying to come up with what would be the great shell. And uh, and I went round and round, and what would be a great shell? There would be a shell for this and a shell for that. And finally, one day, I was talking with a, believe it or not, an IT manager uh, for a um, a Fortune 500 company, who was in the process of thinking about converting to Windows for their hundred thousand desktops. Yeah. And uh, and this guy went on this long rant about how he had to service people who ran the gamut from being, you know, real uh, propeller head geeks who knew everything about computers to rank amateurs who couldn't find the enter key. <laughs> okay. And as he was talking, I had this kind of lightning bolt of inspiration. The epiphany that of VB. needed was a construction set so you could build the shell you needed. Very cool. Very cool. So that's, that's kind of how it came about. Well, I've always wanted to ask you, uh, what was Gates' initial reaction when you showed him Ruby? Oh, it was great. It was, I have to say, it was truly great. Um, he, I was in a conference room with it. He brought about a dozen of his droogies in with him, and, uh, <laughs> and most of them didn't really get it. And they, so they started to kind of throw rocks at it. Were they like looking at Bill, Bill to see if he it. liked it? Yeah. And, uh, and he got it. He got it right away. And uh, at one point, Tandy Trower, who really didn't get it at all, and I don't think to this day gets it. <laughs> Let's not name names or anything, Alan. <laughs> he, said, he said, you know, he made some really nasty remark about, you know, why, what good is this anyway? And, and I was sort of taking a, 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 I was inhaling, ready to, you know, to respond <laughs> to this. And Bill turned around and started explaining my program to Tandy Trower. <laughs> I thought, yes, this is good. That's so cool. He that got it so immediately cool. then. He did, and in fact, he got it more than I did. Well, Bill's always loved BASIC, hasn't he? I mean, ever since the Altair days, I mean, when he wrote that BASIC compiler, he's always had a thing for BASIC. Yes. Well, and he, he said it. He said it right there. I saw, it, I saw the product as a shell, 
And he looked at me and he said, this is going to affect our entire product line. Hmm. And I kind of thought, thanks for the compliment. Nice hyperbole doesn't mean anything. Right. That's why he's the richest man in the world. Yeah, yeah. Because he saw that. Yep. And it took him a couple of minutes. And uh, unlike but, a lot of other... I have to tell you one other thing that happened in that meeting that I, I just, I'm very proud of, is at one point, I showed Bill animation. Nobody had ever done animation on a Windows screen before. Huh, huh. And uh, and I did. I, I wrote my own little uh, utilities to do sprite animation. No kidding. And um, and I started dragging something across the screen, and Bill goes, "How did you do that?" Wow. <laughs> okay, so what would you say to a question like that asked huh. by Bill Gates? Well, uh, I I said the I, only thing I could. I wrote I it. And I said magic. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. That's very uh, coincidental because one of the very first very cool things that I did with VB10 was sprite animation, using memory DCs and XORing and all that stuff. Yeah, and guess what? It's not available in .NET. Well, you can always do it in .NET, can't you? Well, you can. Well, as Mike Geary once said, Windows is defenseless. Yeah. True. Yeah, you've got to go to the API now to. Uh... To do some of the, device the basic graphics things, right? Although I have to say, GDI Plus is really wonderful. Uh, and and I have um, expended an enormous amount of invective on Microsoft for the incredibly bad quality of their programming interfaces in Windows. And I have to say that with .NET, Microsoft has redeemed itself. Hallelujah, they, they, brother. They really, really have done a remarkably good job. It's amazing the stuff and, that and that. If you know me, you know that that's that's a big a big compliment. Yeah, it certainly right. is. How many books have you written, Alan? Um, well, I've just written two, but uh, the About Face, my first book, which was originally published eight years ago, mm -hmm. is has just been completely rewritten and is about to be re a, a second edition is going to be uh, released in March called About Face 2.0 <laughs> and um, it's uh, it's completely rewritten every word of the book has been rewritten it's been completely reorganized seven new chapters we threw out about probably 30,000 words and probably added a new 50,000 words so it's a significantly uh, revised work I'm very proud of it and I did it in conjunction with Robert Ryman, who's a, a very a brilliant designer, who's been working with me for about seven years now. Oh, that's great. I loved your second book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum. I remember, I remember seeing you talk at VBITS a long time ago when that book was coming out. I think it was right when it was out. And uh, the whole argument about that is that end users don't, shouldn't be responsible for designing your software interface because they really don't know what they want. Uh, they actually know less than programmers do. Yeah. Programmers have a weird way of looking at it, but right. at least they have a way of looking at it. Users are just completely random as far as I can tell. So who who is left to design if there's nobody else involved in the process? Build a janitor? <laughs> well, hey, come in here for a minute. Design, <laughs> see, I believe that, that good design is as significant as good programming. Were you talking about user interface design or design in general? User 
interface design, in my opinion, is a term invented by programmers to quarantine an aspect of their job that they dislike intensely. I, I, user interface design, what, I don't know what that is. It's, right. it's as though it's like saying that there's, there's this little portion of the world of the creation of software that can be thought of by other people other than programmers. I, I just don't buy that whole structure. Yeah. I, I think that the people who design programs from the point of view of how users will use them, what they will do, how the program will behave, they have to work in close cooperation with those people who will determine how the program will be built from a technical construction point of view, an engineering point of view, and then those people have to work in close conjunction with the people who actually then have to build it. Yeah. And I, and I think that there are really three roles. There's the architect who pays attention to the user and the technology, and then there's the engineer who pays attention to the technology, and then there's the programmer who has to build the thing. And I don't, I, I think that I'm one of only about four people on the planet who see things that way. Yeah, right. I I uh, have a story for you, Alan. I uh, used to work for a company several years ago. There were three different divisions in the company, and the CEO would let uh, the lead architects in each division basically design the UI any way they wanted. So you wound up with uh, three pieces of software that looked completely different from the same company, and one of the uh, the leads was colorblind. So oh my God. you saw a user interface that was heavy with magenta and yellow. And to say it's ugly would be, you know, giving him a compliment almost. Uh, so no one wanted to really tell this guy, hey, you know, this software is really ugly. It stops a clock. So eventually the uh, CEO wound up hiring an artist that came in. And his goal was just to have consistency across all three platforms that he was dealing with. And the artist then became responsible for designing the UIs and all of the products. Now, as programmers, we didn't like that initially, but uh, eventually I, I came to enjoy the fact that uh, the UIs were all laid out for me. I just had to duplicate uh, whatever the artist drew up, and I was done. Well, that's been my experience, is that, is that programmers really like to have all that interface stuff done for them. Uh, the problem is, is that is that an interface can be uh, consistent across multiple programs and still suck. And it can be beautiful to look at and still suck. I mean, it's just the same way that, that you know, I can write incredibly elegant code as long as it doesn't have to actually run. Right. I, I definitely agree. And uh, a point also that you bring up in the inmates book, that, uh, you know, kind of programmers get caught up in wanting to add feature upon feature upon feature, and they don't really think about the usability aspect of the of the user interface or front ends. And the thing is, is that, is it is that many programmers, in fact, really care deeply about the usability of it. But caring deeply about it and having the um, talent, the training, the charter, the support to do something about it are, are separate things. Yep. And and just having a, a concern isn't good enough. When I talk to programmers in general, they, they tend to look at user interface as the kind of thing that they could do if they had more time. Right. 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 And I don't, I don't, I mean, they don't look at 
people who are, um, you know, who, who other people who work in their office, you know, they don't look at this some guy in the accounting department and, and, and think of him as a guy who could also be a programmer if he had more time. Yeah, that's right. Why, why, would some, why would a programmer think that they could do user interface design if they just put their mind to it? And I don't. I think programming takes special talent and special skills and special training. And I think being able to uh, design the behavior of complex technical systems also takes special talent and special training and special abilities. Yeah, programmers are definitely a special breed. Well, and so are interaction designers. Why do you think uh, business people are so frightened of programmers? I think most everybody is frightened of programmers. You know, programmers... <laughs> <laughs> and who wouldn't be? Programmers... The, what's really frightening to programmers, to a business person, is that programmers don't care. <laughs> don't, business people care. They want to climb that corporate ladder. They want to have a success. They want to drive their revenue up and their costs down. Programmers, they don't care about that. They're happy just writing code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they want good code. They want challenging code. They want interesting code. They want inter technical problems, and they want the, you know, the, the, the bureaucracy off their back. But, but the thing is, is, is that business people get into big, you know, pitched arguments about whether they should, you know, buy or sell. But right. it's for the it's for the same goal. It's for the same objective. Whereas programmers, they don't have the same objective that the buy sell arguers have. And this is this is terribly threatening, terribly frightening uh, to business people. And I think that's the root. Of their fear, I, I would say that there are several other contributing uh, factors. One of them is that programmers tend to have a kind of a, a belligerent presentation. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, they, I mean, they, you know, the, I, you know, the programmer goes, the programmer says, "Look, we've got to do it this way. There are no alternatives. If we don't do it this way, we're going to be in enormous trouble." Well, that's just a sort of a floating of a trial balloon. <laughs> you see, now to a business person, when they hear something like that, they go, boy, that's serious. Right. And in order to, to parse that assertion, I have to really know a lot of technical stuff. And I don't know my technical stuff anywhere near as much as this programmer does. So I'm just going to, to defer to the programmer. <laughs> Big mistake. Yeah. That's like, you know, having your nine-year-old kid come in and say, I don't have to do homework. Honestly, I don't have to do homework. And so you defer to the nine-year-old kid's judgment. You see, that's wrong. Yeah, so uh, programmers are nine-year-old kids with bad hair, basically. Now, you see, now, I didn't say that <laughs> in so many words. <laughs> Hey, so uh, this uh, Irish guy goes into a pub in Dublin, and he sits down every day. He orders the same thing, three pints of Guinness. And he takes a sip of one, puts it down, takes a sip of the other, puts it down, takes a sip of the third one, puts it down. He drinks the three pints like this, one sip at a time from each pint. So um, nobody really pays that much attention to it, but one day they get a new bartender, and he doesn't know this guy's routine. And he says, you know... If I, I, I can pour them one at a time and they won't go flat on you. And he says, oh, no, it's no trouble. See, I drink like this to remember me brothers. See, I have two brothers and when we, we can't be together now. So any, every time, I, every day I come here and I drink three. I drink one for me and one for each brother, just like that. That's the way I do it.
So he says, oh, that's okay. That's nice and sentimental. And uh, one day he comes in, he only orders two pints. And the bartender says, uh-oh, something happened to one of the brothers. So he goes up to the guy and he says, here are your two pints. And, gee, I'm, I just want you to know whatever happened, I'm, I really feel sorry for your apparent loss. And the guy says, oh, no, it's nothing like that. I just quit drinking. <laughs> Windows Update to keep your Windows machine up to date. I do. I love Windows Update. One of the things I like the most about it is if I'm in the middle of downloading a file, an update, and I get disconnected from the internet, and then I reconnect, the file download will resume where it left off. Well, the core technology behind Windows Update is called BITS. It stands for Background Intelligent Transfer Service, which is a really cool new file transfer feature of Windows. Um, that Windows Update happens to use for doing automatic updates. But you can use Bits yourself to do downloads in the background asynchronously uh, from the Internet. In the latest issue of MSDN Magazine, Jason Clark has written an article on using Bits. And you can check out that entire article online at msdn.microsoft.com slash msdnmag. Just look for the current issue, which is the February 2003 issue. Now let's get back to this historic episode of .NET Rocks, where we're talking with Alan Cooper about software, about programmers, and the state of affairs as he sees it, right here on .NET Rocks. Stay tuned. That's, that's a so, so how do we do, how do we, uh, how do business people and programmers survive? How do they get along together? I mean, what's the... What's the answer to this perplexing problem? Um, I think that a lot, a lot of responsibility is on the side of the business people. I think business people have really dropped the ball. They treat software like it's some kind of black box that they can just hand it off to the technical people and let the technical people make the calls. And they can't. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And even if it worked that way back in the old pre-computer days when they let the technical guys work on their you know, lab benches and stuff. It doesn't work that way in the software world because because their customers are 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 are. I mean, they interact with software all day long, whereas they didn't necessarily interact with the engineers in you know like an old smokestack industry before. And uh, they've got to change. They've got to adapt. Does that on the mean the other side? I think that programmers have to come to the realization that having other people work with them is not threatening to them. Right. Now, you know, I mean, I guess both sides are being threatened. I think that, that the programmers feel threatened because they're used to having their chains jerked by business people who don't know what the heck they're doing. Right, And right. I think that business people are scared of the programmers because the programmers are, uh, you know, are, are, are marched to a different drummer. They have different objectives, mm -hmm. and this is frightening. Yeah. And both sides have to get over this. And they've got to understand each other. Let me ask you this. Do you see any tools technology-wise in the .NET suite of, uh, of development tools and enterprise tools that sort of help bridge the gap between these two worlds? None. Not at all. It's not a technical issue. It doesn't have any, anything to do with programming. doesn't have anything to do with modeling. I think .NET is a great or... thing. 
but it has nothing whatsoever to do with the social issues in the workplace. I think that that uh, that it's about people. Actually, this is why I'm so interested in um, in extreme programming, because Which is while two extreme people, programming right? kind of seems at the surface level to be about programming technique. It's really about getting people to talk to each other. You're talking about where two people work at the same time on the same thing, right? Um, actually, well, that is one aspect of it, but, but a more significant aspect is that it gets programmers talking to users. Okay. Or, or, or to stakeholders, uh, to customer advocates, depends on what you want to call them. But, uh, the point is, is it, is it gets business people holding the hands of the programmers on a daily basis and walking together through that technical minefield that we call software development. Tell, a, tell us what extreme programming is, for those who don't know. Oh, that's a nasty, nasty question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but let's just say that what's, what's significant about extreme programming is that it is programmers looking at the human and social side of programming for what I believe is the first time in the history of programming. Okay. And and for that, I think it's significant. Still don't know what it is, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, I'm not going to bite. But there are um, <laughs> there are some really brilliant guys who are involved in the extreme programming movement who I'm sure would be happy to tell you. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll have to get one on the show. It's it's okay. a religion. I, I have no idea what... I mean, I've heard extreme programming talked about in, in terms of having two programmers sit with one with two different brains working on the same code. But that's as far as I've seen. Yeah, I worked at a company where one of the lead architects read the book, Extreme Programming, and he tried to, to put some of it into practice, but it just wasn't accepted by the development teams there. Hmm. Well, you see, this is the point, isn't it? These programmers are, in fact, not doing extreme programming when they think they are. Hmm. Just the same way as that people are out there doing goal-directed interaction design, except they're not. They think they are. Yeah. People think that they're being, you know, good XP, uh, .NET programmers, and they're not. You know, hmm. they just think they are. They go to a couple of the conferences, and they listen to a couple of wise People stand up there and give a presentation, then they go home and kind of do the same old stuff. People use C++ and they think they're being object-oriented programmers, but they're not. But programmers, what, what programmers do is so inscrutable and so invisible and so self-motivated yeah. that there's no way to look at it. Organizations do not examine the work product of programmers with a critical eye. Programmers in various shops may, in fact, look at their own work product with a critical eye. And a given programmer somewhere in the world may look at a colleague's work product with a critical eye on request. But in general, as an industry, there's no supervision whatsoever of what we do as programmers. Right. Now, there may be some, you know, product manager somewhere who's setting deadlines and drawing screen, you know, sketches. But there's nobody who is watching over our work the way somebody would watch over our work if we were, 
you know, building automobiles or houses or, you know, just about anything else in the manufacturing world. Well, it's because it's a self-inventing process, isn't it? I mean... Because it's the way we have chosen to work, because it's the nature of the tool that attracts, you know, fiercely individual people who who build castles in their minds, right? which is mm -hmm. what programming is. Yeah. So where, where do you start to fix the problem? How, how would you approach it? Well, that's a good question. I, I think that there are two key steps that have to be taken. One is we have to bring programming out into the open. Out the of the closet, as it were. We have to treat it with the enormous, enormous respect that it deserves. I believe that most business people don't have much respect at all for programmers. Because and of their... I believe that programmers deserve enormous respect because what they do is so incredibly difficult. I like the sound of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, when I'm talking about respect, to really respect something, you really have to, you have to get close to it. You can't stand off at a distance and respect it from a distance. And business people do that. And, and, and it doesn't work. And so that's why programmers go into their own little shells and they write the code they want. And the business people come in and say, well, we're going to be doing this. And the programmers all go, yeah, okay, we're going to be doing that. And then they go off and do what they want. <laughs> you know, it's almost a tribal mentality where we're going, that's not the way of our people. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Exactly. And so what we have is we have the anti-extreme programming tribes, and we have the extreme programming tribes, and we've got the UML tribes, and we've got the, you know, this is the way we do it at Macromedia tribes, and this is the way we do it at Adobe tribes, and this is the way we do it at Oracle tribes. Yeah. And it's wrong. It's not professional and it's not effective. And what it does is it's is it's very um pre-civilized. It's the barbarians that you know roam the steppes in prehistory is right. what it is. Doesn't it does it come from experience? I guess that's a good question, you know. Uh companies really won't know how to approach a problem without having prior experience and since technology and programming especially is growing so rapidly, somebody with experience is considered, you know, not hireable <laughs> because they they have experience. And we want somebody with no experience. I mean, these are on the bleeding edge. It's about how do you conceive of a piece of software? And and the thing is, is that it takes it takes years and many releases for the simplest uh, forward steps right. to manifest themselves in commercial software. That's because commercial software is incredibly resistant to any kind of a, a coherent process for a design and creation. I think one of the problems, Alan, is that people make design decisions, technology decisions, and just about every decision sort of flows from the bottom up, but depending on uh, what tools are available for the platform we're going for, what our customers use, and uh, the tools that our staff is knowledgeable about. Those are severely limiting factors, don't you think? Well, I, I actually, I think you're being generous when you say mm -hmm. that. I think that the decisions are being made out of fear. The number one driving force that I see in all decisions is fear. Fear of? Fear, well, the number one fear is of, of hatching a catastrophe. Okay. See, the thing is, is, is that people have no control. They, they apparently have no control over software construction. 
So what they try to do with software construction is is they know there are these well not apocryphal but they're true stories of software that you know that that people wrench on for for a couple of years and then the whole thing just explodes into nothing. Right. And and people don't want this to happen. And they have no clue how right. to control how to something it. like that. Yeah, how to I mean, prevent it. You look it. at something like like uh eBay. Hmm. You know, and it's a bunch of really smart, you know, Silicon Valley people, you know, kind of shooting from the hip and thinking up really cool things to do and they're making, you know, in huge quantities of money and 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 driving an industry. Yeah. Okay, and then you look at something like pets.com or webvan. Yeah. What this was is the same thing. It had the same brilliant programmers and the same brilliant business people and the same brilliant marketing people and the same, you know, A-list venture capitalists from, you know, Menlo Park. And they had all the same pedigrees, you know, and one is hugely profitable and hugely successful and hugely growing. And the other one's a smoking crater laughing stock. Well, you know why? I mean, well, the, the thing is, is that, is that you, it is possible to answer that question. But people in the community of software development choose not to answer that question. It's back, you know, 500 years ago when, when people drew maps, you know, and off in the edges, there be dragons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't know why. When a ship sails off in that direction, it never comes back. Now, it is possible to understand what happens to that ship, but they choose not to. Alan, uh, I, if you ask me what happened there, I could tell you that eBay is based on market forces. Petco is based on the fact that people need dog food for crying out, you know, which is, which is nothing compared to a market. Well, and and the thing is, it's is that there are. It's it's very complicated. Don't you agree? I mean, don't you agree that those Petco is. You know, it's just one slice, one vertical slice of retail, whereas eBay is sort of this environment where a market can thrive. Okay, so I had a chance to uh, meet uh, Julie Wainwright the other day, and uh, and I asked her that, that question. I said, do people want to buy pet food over the Internet? <laughs> and she whipped around and said, you know, I was selling $45 million a quarter worth of dog food. Okay. Yes, people want to buy dog food, pet food over the internet. Okay, the thing is, is eBay, we don't, we have failed to answer the question, why is eBay successful? And we have failed to answer the question, why did pets.com go under? I really don't think that we have analyze those things. Everybody, there's a lot of glib pundits standing around saying, well, you can't make money selling pet food over the internet. Well, I disagree with that completely. I mean, I think it's, it's a lot more illogical to think that you can, you know, you, that you can make money selling, you know, Pez dispensers over the internet. The thing is, is that you can make money selling anything over the internet. The question is, how do you sell something over the internet? What is it that the people who are buying that want? Mm -hmm. What do they value? Mm -hmm. What are they willing to pay for? What is it they seek? Is it the Pez dispensers that they seek, or is it something else? And I just don't think that that level of analysis takes place in the software industry. Hmm. I don't think that the 
the the business people look at it, and I don't think the programming people look at it. And I really think that it's time that we do so if we intend to move forward and grow and mature as an industry. Yeah, I definitely don't think the programming folks look at it. They they're writing code. Yeah. Well, and and I'm perfectly happy with the idea that the programming folks aren't going to be the ones who answer those questions. Right. But then I say to the programming folks, okay, well then get off the tracks, please. Right. And let, let somebody others. else do that. See, the programmers are stopping the business people from answering those questions. And they're doing it because they're they're using, you know, the classic programmers passive aggressive methods of uh, you know, of of making of frightening business people away from asking and answering those questions. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm really, I'm not, I, I think that the greatest culpability is on the management community and not on the programming community. Right. But I think the programmers have got to ease up. And now for something completely different. That's right, John. It's a musical interlude from yours truly, a 3 a.m. creation called Funky Stuff Number 4.
So how does it make you feel when you hear people call uh, Visual Basic a toy language and you see all these uh, half-assed programs out there flooding the market? You know, people like, we used to, at Carl and Gary's, we used to get a steady stream of uploads of uh, VB4 message box objects, which were approximately five to six megabytes zipped. Um, which well, would allow you to program your message boxes much more object-oriented. Um, yeah, how does that um, make you feel I, when you go I, I to sleep at night? I think accusations are, are pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> I think they're, um, it's never been easy to tell the difference between uh, hobbyists and professionals in the world of programming. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that uh, things like Visual Basic blur the distinction. I mean, I think that that a modern, uh, uh, you know, a modern, you know, Japanese sedan blurs the distinction between race car driving and, you know, commuting to work every day. Mm -hmm. Just because your average, you know, Japanese sedan is a pretty high performance vehicle these days, just by the nature of it. And I think yep. you know, Visual Basic is a pretty high performance vehicle too, and it, so it, it lets lightweights build stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's great, mm -hmm. but that's not professional. Right. Well, going into .NET, uh, you know, do you really think the syntax matters anymore? Whether you write something in C Sharp or VB.NET or, you know, God forbid, if you wanted COBOL.NET. You know, that's a great question. When .NET was first announced, I, like 70 or 80 million other people, didn't have a clue as to what it was. And, Some still uh, don't. <laughs> and Microsoft seemed intent on obfuscating what .NET was. And whenever anybody asked them, they kind of said, well, it's sort of pretty much everything. Right. And it was a kind of a non-answer. And uh, it still is hard to get an answer to the question, what is .NET? Yeah. I can tell you in two words what .NET is. And Freaking it's awesome. Really simple. It's a Windows API. Yeah. It's the new Windows API. And the Windows API for many years was was an embarrassment, a technical... Uh, Cluster f Some kind of weird mutant. <laughs> uh, it was just bad. It was bad, bad, bad. It's always been bad. Each time a new rev of Windows came out, the API got even worse and worse and worse. .NET is a new Windows API, and it's a good Windows API. And... Uh, you know, unlike the the federal judicial system, I don't think that there's any you can point to something and say that is an operating system and function, and that isn't. Yeah. And so what .NET does is it extends the definition of what it service what it provides service for beyond what the original Windows API did. You know, including sure. things like online communications. Um, but the Windows API, it just so happened the original Windows API, you could really only talk to it using C or C++. Syntax has never mattered. What's mattered has been APIs. Right. And we couldn't get to some critical ones with uh, VB. You needed to know C++ or C to uh, to get the job done? You, um, no, actually, I'm going back to, to pre-VB. I'm saying that you were really stuck. I mean, what VB did was it freed programmers up from having to know C and uh, and that Windows API. VB gave them access to that Windows API without actually having to learn it. And yeah. that was one of its great contributions. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, you're right. 
that what .NET does is it makes syntax a lot less significant, but it's it's that pales in comparison to the sheer quality and scope of the new API, the new .NET API. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, syntax has not been all that important, and now it's even less important. Well, as a longtime VB programmer, I can tell you, uh, you know, bearing the slings and arrows from the C++ crowd, I always heard, oh, but you can't do anything with pointers. Uh, you don't have inheritance. You don't have uh, multi-threading. And, you know, these were the things that I heard over and over again. So, you know, now we have all those things. Yeah. Well, not really pointers, but... For <laughs> for anybody who writes C++ to criticize any other language is really wrong. Because C++ <laughs> has got to be one of the worst languages ever invented. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's. I mean, the thing is, is that it's C was a beautiful, beautiful language, but it was sort of like a... It was like a a carving knife. It had a single blade, and it did one thing fantastically well with enormous efficiency. And to try to, you know, tighten screws with it was really wrong. Well, what C++ did is it becomes the 600-bladed Swiss Army knife. You know, and it's got all those features, but it's impossible for anybody to use to do anything. It weighs 600 pounds. I, at least yeah. I thought. I mean, I... I pretty much gave up programming about the time I started to work with C++ because I found it so unpleasant. You and me both. I found Visual Basic unesthetic. That's just personal. And, and you know, and what one person finds aesthetic, another person finds very aesthetic, and it's not significant. And you right. can have lots of discussions about it, but it's like whether you like a movie or a painter or music or something, and it doesn't really mean anything. Right, I've always thought it's not such an elegant language. Visual Basic? Yeah, Visual Basic is the way I would kind of categorize it. Yeah. I like it, but it's not elegant. Right. That's because it's not based on a sophisticated language system. I mean, it's based on BASIC. And what BASIC is, is it was a, it was Kemeny and Kurtz, a couple of statistics professors at Dartmouth, had a bunch of students who had to write little statistics programs in Fortran. And so what Kemeny and Kurtz did is they basically put a dress on it. On Fortran. Yeah. You know, they tried to make it a little easier for their guys. And this language got stretched way out of proportion into this giant development environment. It's way beyond where it ever should have. Well, well, Alan, I can tell you that I came from uh, quick basic uh, roots, you know, with, uh, but I was, instead of learning C, I was learning assembler and um, going in between quick basic and assembler, you know, with the Crescent software gang, I learned a lot from those guys. And uh, and they were always arguing and, and trying to at least bring a little bit of credibility to the basic language by saying, look, you know, uh, C isn't so so great. I mean, if you want to do anything low level, just make an assembler routine and link it in. And um, anyway, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I really appreciate having Visual Basic coming around at the time it did because it sort of allowed me to get into Windows programming from the top down which I really liked. And if I had to slog through all that C++, C code, and the Windows API, you know, from day one, I probably wouldn't have been as creative and as um, focused on problem solving as I was. 
And now that we have a tool such as VB.net, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I was I was all over Petzold and, and all the Windows API stuff, the hardcore stuff, Dan Appleman's book and, and uh, books and, and tools, trying to do everything in VB that couldn't be done. You know, I was, I was always trying to understand that. And then, you know, when VBNet comes around, oh my God, it's like nirvana, you know, because I can be productive and I can use my high level code. And if I need to, if I need to do anything that requires something a little more level, a little more low level, such as uh, manipulate large blocks of memory directly, I can jump down to C sharp and call that. But, you know, for, if I'm going to program an application, I want to be productive, you know, so I, I really appreciate that language being there at that time, I think uh, it was good for me anyway. Well, I I think that that is a common story. I think a lot of people feel that way. And, you know, I have to say that I kind of feel that way. I stopped programming for 10 years, and I've just started again using C Sharp. And yep. I was one of those guys who wrote in C and knew the Windows API backwards and forwards and 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 have scars to prove it, and uh, and C sharp in .NET is just it's awesome a joy. It's a joy to work in. I mean, it certainly isn't perfect. It it, it has you know its rough spots, but um, it's just it's so powerful and so easy relative to well, abs- from on an absolute level, it's really easy. On a relative to the, the old Windows API in C level, it, yeah. it's remarkable. Yep. And uh, you know, I talk about what I call the invasion of the lightweights. <laughs> yeah. The, the the software industry has been characterized from its beginning with these successive waves of invasions of lightweights. And and back in the early days, there were the guys who who coded with ones and zeros. And when the assembler language guys came along, I'm sure they all said, oh, they're a bunch of lightweights. They only know mnemonics. And then when the Fortran guys came along, I'm sure all the assembly guys said, oh, they're just a bunch of lightweights. Right. And uh, then the COBOL guys came in, and then the basic guys. And each one brings another invasion of lightweights. Right. You know, and then comes the visual basic guys. And, and, and of course, the HTML guys were the ultimate invasion of the ultimate lightweights. (laughs) But an interesting thing about these successive layers is there's two distinguishing characteristics common to every layer, which is each one is an order of magnitude greater than the layer that came before it. And each one is dependent on the layer that came before it. Mm. And so it becomes a, a, a kind of a, a mutually beneficial dependency. Right. The assembler language guys find a ready market in the Fortran guys, and the Fortran guys find tools that they need from the assembler guys, and the HTML guys depend on the C++ guys, and it's it's good. It's all good. And the end result is higher productivity. Yes, and not just productivity for the individual, although that's that's definitely true, but it's better software for all of us to use. Right. And and but what happens is is so much of what goes on in the in the world of programming is a lot of you know sniping at the other guy because the other guy's a lightweight. Yeah. Compared to us. Mark Mark and I never call the uh C plus plus guys lightweights. We just um <laughs> we point out that their hair is usually a little greasier than ours. That's all. Yeah, we're we're critical of their uh 
uh, their uh, hair. That's about this it. This would be a good time for us to uh, come clean. You know, we've we've taken a little bit of heat by email, Mark, haven't we? But about us a bit about us picking on C sharp and C plus plus guys and you know threats that they will will unleash the uh you know the cynicism of the C++ community and the C# sharp community on on poor little us. Yeah, one guy said he was going to shave my cat if we didn't <laughs> shut up. <laughs> well, anyway, I, we'll just set the record straight here by saying, you know, in we have a lot of fun on this show. We have big mouths and which you know, the whole part, point of this show is to stir up some controversy, isn't it? I mean, what the hell else are we doing? Are we educating people? I don't think so. And anyway, uh, well, wait a minute. I hey, thought now, I was educating. Well, you, of course, are. But, you know, the the hosts are, we're just meaningless drivel coming out of our mouths. <laughs> so, um, so I just wanted to say that, you know, we love C Sharp. We love C++. And, and C Sharp is the logical evolution for Java, C++, and C programmers. All I'm, all I'm saying is that if you're a VB programmer, don't think that you have to jump ship to C sharp because you're going to get a more powerful language. You know, the chan chances are 99.9999% of the stuff you're ever going to do in your life, it's going to be perfectly adequate and if not very much more productive in VB net because that's what you know. Yeah, my message to everyone is learn the framework. Absolutely. Learn what what, what is where, how to find it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's very true. That's the key. Well, Alan, I wanted to ask you about the uh, Visual Studio.net environment uh, from a UI perspective. Uh, how do you like it? Uh, what do you not like about it? Um, well, actually, I like it a lot. Um, I, <laughs> you know, coming back to programming after a 10-year hiatus is, has, uh, <laughs> has really been fun. 10 years is about how long it took Microsoft to to get it together. And um, so it's nice. I mean, I think IntelliSense is truly awesome. I yeah. think the whole I idea that I can, I can write uh, a comment in front of a, uh, of a method or a class and then have that comment pop up in a tooltip when I'm coding it. I, I think that's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's an order of magnitude leap forward in, in productivity I think that the the whole um just all the 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 tools that protect me from myself are um as an old C programmer who spent hours and hours and hours tracking down a really annoying little pointer bugs I really like this and um and I think it's in the early days of IDEs they were just they helped a little bit but they also got in our way a lot and so the real macho programmers like me, we just, you know, wrote everything in Emacs and our fingers, we could type a hundred words a minute and, and, and that's how we did it. So I have to say that it's really a pleasure to be able to work in an IDE that's really supportive. It's nice for me to see that because everything is built on objects, it, it shows in yeah. the consistency across well, the UI. You know, Richard Hale Shaw said it, uh, I, I ran into him at VS Live. And uh, and he just he he just laughed and he said, "You remember how bad it used to be? Well, they took those people and they and they shooed them out and they brought in some people who are really smart and put them in charge. Yeah, and it's really good now. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, couldn't have said it, it better. It's you have to understand the depths to which Microsoft sank in the early days. It was just 
you would look at the architectural decisions that they made, and, and, and at every turn they made a wrong decision. And as I start fooling around with .NET, at every step I see they made the right decision. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm just constantly, daily, am impressed with the level of thought um, and architectural vision that has gone into, into .NET. You're here. It's, it's just remarkable. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm into sockets programming. And now I'm teaching a three-day hands-on advanced class in Visual Basic.net sockets programming at Franklin's Net. So I'm going to show you all the different tools and technologies that you can use in the .NET framework to do sockets programming. It's never been easier to do sockets programming than it is in the .NET framework. But it comes at a price of a learning curve. And uh, it took me a while to wrap my mind around it. Now I can show you everything I know. We'll do multi-threaded clients and multi-threaded servers. And you're going to walk away with an arsenal of code that you can use right away to implement really interesting stuff like passing data sets across sockets that are compressed and encrypted really fast. Uh, Blow web services away in terms of performance. And we'll write a lot more interesting code. Check it out on our website at www.franklins.net. Now let's get back to Alan Cooper, the father of Visual Basic. Talk with Mark and myself here on .NET Rocks. Don't you go away. All right, Server Explorer is something that that I really like. I love the ability to, to go and look at databases and not have to go out to Enterprise Manager. But you know, it's taken me a while to not automatically, almost a Pavlovian response when I open up the development environment, to open up Enterprise Manager at the same time. Yeah. Because I'm so used to going back to uh, to SQL Enterprise Manager to deal with the database. And now I don't have to. I, I was early on forgetting that I had that Server Explorer tab over there. Yeah. And I, I just think that's awesome. I use it all the time. I, I like the... Uh performance counters and services and all those other things that you can just drag and drop and do drag and drop drag and drop performance counters what a what an idea right you know i'm still discovering things like this every day uh as i use it there are things i i i really don't know about that i i mean if you if you've been working in in visual basic or visual studio for years for the last decade a lot of these things are have crept up on you slowly, but I'm discovering. Um, I just found out that there's online help the other day. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know <laughs> buy this stuff. Oh, and by the way, the offer still stands, Alan, for you to come take my class for free. I'd be glad and honored to teach you that. Thank you. Actually, I would like I to know. do that. Um, I I just have to find a, a time to to get away. I'm I'm. I'm kind of working on a new project here, and it's really consuming all of my time. I hear you. Alan, you need to come for the food, if nothing else. Oh, God, yeah. Hot lobster rolls. Barbecued ribs. Good food, huh? We I have like good awesome, food. We have awesome food here. Sorry, we put on the feed bag at the Franklin's. We've got an authentic Mexican restaurant right down the street. It's just unbelievable. You know, keep in mind, I live in California. No, no. It's, it's, it's on par. Okay. Now, it's not a burrito for five bucks. That's 20 pounds, which is what you get in California. <laughs> we call them food logs. <laughs> yeah, food logs. 
I'm still processing when you uh, you said that you know Fortran Basic was basically Fortran with a dress on it. Forever now, I'm going to think of Basic as Fortran and drag. <laughs> yes, well, and that's a totally appropriate thing. But um, here's a it's question: the RuPaul of to programming ponder, language. Which is, did Bill Gates invent peak and poke? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on uh, the DAC platform for a while, and uh, the Vax that I worked on had a, a basic compiler on it, but I I don't recall seeing Peak and Poke. I could be wrong. We're uh we're friends with a guy who invented select case, Bruce Baca. That's, yeah, it's a um, switch you know, statement well, in VB. I, you know, I invented Wend. You invented Wend? Wend. W E N D, the while end statement. I was huh. working with Gordon Eubanks in nineteen seventy eight, maybe. And uh, we were working on his language, uh, C-Basic, at the time. Hmm. And uh, I was imploring him to put a while statement in. Because at the time, the only looping constructs it had were those that were in BASIC, which didn't include any uh, of the modern looping constructs. It had a for next loop, just like Fortran. And, yeah. uh, and I said, you need a while loop. And he said, well, syntactically, he didn't know how to uh, make that work in the parser. A, a for next statement had a had a next statement that ended the loop, and he needed something that would end the while statement. And so I suggested wend huh. to him. Cool. So, so you're a multi-inventive person here. Well, what else don't we know about you, Mr. Cooper? Um, let's see. Uh, don't tell me you have a band. No, no, I'm not much of a musician though. But I have a son who's in a band. Oh, cool. He's uh, he's 17 years old, and he plays the guitar. Cool. His band is called Ella Funk. Awesome. Cool. They're my kids. I have two teenage boys, you know, and they they bought me some record albums for uh, for Christmas. They got me the Grateful Dead. Awesome. Which ones? Well, uh, um, uh, Terrapin Station and uh, uh, American Beauty. Those are great albums. Like I know, but I, I mean, I used to be a, a, a Dead fan back in the day, but now my kids are Grateful Dead fans today. They like The Who and The Doors. That's they so love cool. all that old music. It goes to show you, good music crosses generations. But the thing is, is if I didn't want to have anything to do with my dad's music, and my dad didn't want to have anything to do with my music. So what's on the horizon for uh, Cooper Software? Or what's, what's the name of your company? Well... Is it just Cooper? My company is now called Cooper. And uh, and Cooper is uh, is a consulting organization, and we have uh, Cooper U. And Cooper U, we train people in our uh, goal-directed methods, which have been uh, very effective. We uh, I invented this thing called a persona, and it's turned out to be one of the most effective tools for interaction design, and um, and it's been very widely adopted across the industry. Cool. And uh, so we uh, and we've done quite a bit of work on on developing personas and and we uh, teach people how to use them and, and other design tools that we've pioneered. Um, but I have kind of uh, turned over day to day running of the company to my wife and business partner Sue Cooper, and she's um, running it in conjunction with a, a couple of the principals there. And uh, I've turned my attention to doing some some new product invention. Awesome. Anything you care to share with us, or 
Well, I think that there's very little work being done in the area of application software that is not, you know, sort of corporate infrastructure. Yeah. And I think that there's quite a need for good application software. I have been coding pretty much nonstop since October. Awesome. And I've probably got about, I don't know, maybe about 10,000 lines of code, something like that. Wow. It's it's actually, it sort of gets up and limps on the screen. <laughs> it's kind of humbling, though. You know, it's kind of like pushing that Sisyphus, pushing that rock up the hill every day. Right. Well, it's got to be fun to be back on the programming saddle again, though. Well, it's, um, I, I think it's really unfortunate that I have to program. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. It's, it's, um, it, I, you know, I, I just think that, that there's, there's just a, a, a remarkable lack of vision in the, in our industry. And, um, and the problem is, is that people are, you know, they're, they're used to being burned by software. And so when you say that you're going to do something new, that just people just kind of get a grip on their wallet when you say that. Right. Well, do you think in the future we're ever going to get to the point uh, that computers work like they do in Star Trek, where you'll just be able to walk up and tell the computer your idea and have it do it for you? You know, I've been married to my wife for 22 years, and she doesn't understand what I say when I say things to her. And the reason the computers work so well in Star Trek is because it's fiction. Right. It's not even very good fiction. <laughs> I really think, I mean, I've said this before, and, and I will say it many times again, the division of labor in the information age is very clear. People do the thinking, and computers do the work. And what happens is all the fiction writers all have the computers doing the thinking. Right. And uh, it just isn't going to happen that way. Yeah. And voice is just injecting a lot of uncertainty in the man-machine dialogue. Yeah, you know, uh, when you mentioned that your wife really doesn't know what what uh, you're talking about most of the time, I don't know if this is a typical evening at home for you, but uh, d the dinner table is, for me is, my wife's a nurse, she'll say, you know, I'll say, hi, honey, how was your day? And she'll say, oh, I, uh, let's see, I, I catheterized a guy today, and, uh, you know, I had a kid with a broken arm and a... Something like that. And I watch ER. You know, I can pretty much figure out what she's talking about. And she says, how was your day? What did you do? And I said, I, I generated several strong names and deployed all my assemblies to the GAC. And you she'll know, say, uh-huh. Pass you know, the salt. You <laughs> have just made my earlier point that <laughs> what we programmers do is completely and utterly opaque to the outside world. Right. And we kind of reinforce that opaqueness and the outside world is perfectly happy with that because they don't they're not interested in the incredibly geeky stuff that exactly. we find interesting <laughs> and i i know i was very excited today that i was able to get my program to do late binding for the first time <laughs> and i've tried to tell that to at least five people today <laughs> That's right. and, and they all wander away it's a lonely I, business I'm talking but i got oh, late binding time. you don't understand this is really interesting you know it's they're just not interested. For the love of God, can't you see the the, the beauty here? I, I know. It really is. It's like, you know, I've wanted to teach a college class for years. I call it um, computer appreciation, where I 
where I can where I can talk <laughs> about the joys of recursion. <laughs> you know, and things like that. I mean, the 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 you know, you do a whole class session on the incredible elegance of exclusive oaring things three times in a row. <laughs> You guys and me, we we like that stuff, but <laughs> normal people, they don't. It's not even on their planet. Yeah, it's just very, very a lonely oh, no. business. That's for sure. Uh, right. Well, uh, any new books on the horizon, Alan? Um, well, I've been reading uh, Stephen Pinker's book, The Blank Slate. Right. Stephen Pinker is a brilliant guy. He's a great writer. The Blank Slate is a is a more difficult read than his last book, uh, How the Mind Works. But I strongly recommend it because um, most people have really goofy and incorrect notions of how we think about things. And programmers, because they work with computers all the time, have a tendency to think that people react to things in kind of deterministic ways. Yeah. And um, and it's really wrong. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, you know, programmers say things like, well, the user knows what they want, so I'm going to ask the user what they want. And, and that's really a, an enormously ridiculous statement and a, based on a series of enormously ridiculous assumptions. And one of the reasons why I like Steven Pinker's work is because he, he so methodically destroys any thought that we might have that kind of an attitude towards things. Mm -hmm. um, so I li I'm liking the blank slate. Did you read uh, Petzold's book, Code? You know, I have that here on my shelf. I actually, I, I, I bought it when it just came out, but I haven't, uh, I haven't read it. Although I have to say that, um, that programming Microsoft Windows with C Sharp by Petzold, the 17th edition, I think, is very well-thumbed here. Yes, we've had a, at least a couple of uh, recommendations about that book. Well, I, Petzold is, is um, Petzold the book is an old buddy of mine. I've got the original uh, uh, first edition, yeah. very, very, very well thumbed and marked and 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 uh, posted it. Um, and so I was in the bookstore looking for a book on on uh, .net, and I found this big heavy book, and I started looking at it. And go, boy, this is just the book I need. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got it home that I realized it was Petzold. Huh. Good old. Char By the way, I'll tell you something about Charlie Petzold that most people don't know. He has a um, he has a Windows logo tattooed on his arm. No kidding! Wow, he's hardcore. Yeah. So there you have it. We have to have him as a guest. Oh, that'd be awesome. That's the you, second you time his really, name he's has a come fascinating up. Fascinating guy. Yep. We'll have to get him as a guest. All right, man. Well, any last thoughts that uh, you can impart? Uh, words of wisdom. Uh, that you want to impart before we say goodnight? Well, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, we're, we're sort of slouching towards something here. I, I think, you know, something has to give in the software industry. I'm, I'm kind of a, a glass half empty sort of person. So I tend to see all the, all the bleak things. And, uh, and, and so I, I come across as very critical, um, but in general, I think, you know, we're slowly, we're moving forward. I, um, I do believe that business people and programmers will find some sort of common ground at some point. I think that we're going to be forced to do that. 
just if we want to move forward yeah. because software is so important and so complicated yeah. and so vital that it has to happen. So even though I, I make it sound kind of bleak, I actually do think there is forward progress. All right, something I was going to mention earlier, uh, as a consultant, I've worked for consulting companies in the past. Some of the projects that ran very smoothly were ones where programmers were forced to get involved in requirements gathering. Uh, so business analysts uh, worked with them, but it wasn't a case where the business analysts did all that upfront work. Uh, some spec got written, and then it got turned over to the programmers to do the work. That forced the programmers to uh, understand the business process and the reason why they were writing the software they were writing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that that for something to get built correctly, the programmers have to understand why. But the business people don't have to understand, you know, about about, you know, late binding or about the GAC. Right. And I think it's kind of one-sided. And, uh, you know, you, you read a lot of books and a lot of magazines, and they give advice to programmers on how to do good programming. And they, they say things like, well, you know, being a good programmer is more than just being a good coder. They say yeah. there's other things to programming to make you a good programmer. You have to talk to the user, and you have to think about the interface. You have to have bad yada, breath. Yada. <laughs> you know... You have to eat hot dogs. Yeah, I I say if there's so much to programming beyond coding, why don't we have non-coding programmers do that stuff for us? Yeah, and non-coding programmers, I think, are what interaction designers are. They're not user interface designers. They're not people who sit there and draw sketches of the screen. Right. They're non-coding programmers. They yep. deal with all that incredible, complicated stuff that programmers are, are being told that they have to pay attention to that they really don't want to. Right. And they're really not that good at it. Some yeah. of them kind of fake it adequately. There's two kinds of coding. There's the coding that we love to do, and then there's the coding that those rational guys tell us we have to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. and I, when I say coder, I don't mean writing the code that you know that some program tells you you have to. But I'm talking about the kind of brilliant kind of coding that motivates us, that makes us get get up out of bed every morning and say, oh, boy, I get to do some coding today. You know, I get to discover what the GAC is. So, Alan, do you have any favorite coffee shops in Palo Alto? Um, no, I like to make my own. But there's a, um, there's a little place called Connoisseur Coffee in Redwood City. And uh, it's not a coffee shop, but it's a roaster. And they're just about a half a mile from my house. And they're very huh. small, and uh, I go in there and get get coffee from them. Are you one? Of, home. Are you one of these guys that uh, takes your own beans and roasts them and does the whole uh, thing? That's from what wrong? they do. They've got a couple of old uh, German coffee roasting machines. Huh. Coffee is. Well, I used to call coffee programming fluid. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an important tool. Absolutely, it liquid was actually, sleep. Uh, my first company, pro, uh, coffee, was a line item in our general ledger. I call it liquid sleep. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. You guys have asked really good questions, and it's really been a lot of fun to be able to, um, uh, you know, to kind of hold forth here in in a wide ranging discussion. Yeah, it's been great to have you on the show. And yeah, i got to tell you, Alan, I'm a big fan. This has simply been a thrill for me. Me too. Uh, to get to talk to you. Well, yeah, thank me... you. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, meeting you guys face-to-face. -face. Mark, do you uh, head up north for the um, 
for the uh, Franklin.net training? Yeah, I sure do. Good. Yeah, if you come and attend a class, I'm going to make sure I'm there. Oh, we're going to have fun. <laughs> good, good. I'll look forward to it. And uh, and I'll see, um, I'd like to get you guys into um, Cooper U, too. I think it would be a real good kind of a quid pro quo. Absolutely. We'll spread the word. That's right. Yeah. Spread the love, man. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, on behalf of Mark and myself, I'd like to thank you. And um, on behalf of all the thousands of listeners who are ever going to hear this throughout time, uh, just a hearty thank you for, for coming and imparting your wisdom to us. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks. Come again. I will. All right. Good night. Good night, Alan.